0: pray because the battle belongs to the Lord. And, and I drew that out of the text because um, there was a prophet who spoke to uh, one of the kings of Israel, um, Jehoshaphat, and said, Jehoshaphat, don't fear, the battle belongs to the Lord. And I made a case for why that's true for us, but I also gave a warning and said, you know, not every passage in the Bible uh, can necessarily be taken for us and applied to us today. We have to do some interpretive work to understand what's happening. Um, and my, my call for us is that as we read the Bible, and as you read the Bible at home, not just here, uh, but at home, you, you read the Bible, we need to be good students of the Bible. And one of the ways that you can be a good student of the Bible is to ask the question, what was the author intending to say? What, what was the author's intended purpose in writing it? And, and if you can figure that out, you're going to not end up in some cult uh, or some heresy. Um, And one of the ways that we can sort of interpret Scripture together is by asking the question, is the author prescribing something for us, or is he describing something for us? There are different types in the Bible. There are some passages that are prescriptive in nature. The author is prescribing something that we ought to do. But there are also sections of Scripture that are more descriptive in nature. You follow me? where the author is describing what happened. For instance, um, in the Old Testament, we find that a lot of the forefathers of uh, the Jewish faith had multiple wives. Now, it's important for us to to know, why did the author include that? Is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? Is is the author including the fact that um, Israel, uh, uh, Jacob had two wives? Is he saying, and you guys, I'm going to prescribe that men should have multiple wives. Or is he just describing the reality? Just so you know, Keystone does not enforce or or, uh, support uh, polygamy. Alright? And because we want to read prescriptive text as prescriptive and descriptive as descriptive and not mix up the two. The the text that we're going to be in this morning has the potential, if we read it in the wrong way, To start some weird cults, and there are some, Uh, there was, I guess, a uh, a commune up in upstate New York, the Oneida commune, and you're thinking, Oneida, where have I heard that before? Uh, You've heard it because they created the the kitchen utensils that you probably buy at uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, that's the same group. Um, They took the passage that we're going to read today and and saw that the church had all things in common, and they said, we're going to have all things in common, and they shared everything, everything uh wives included and uh we i don't want to to lead us there uh this morning and so we need to be careful as we approach it and the the same passage we'll look at today there's uh there are some christians some pentecostal churches uh that would say that in order for you to show that you truly have the holy spirit or at least are maturing into your faith is to speak um in tongues And at Keystone, we don't believe that you need to speak in tongues to be able to prove that you have received the Holy Spirit. But if you receive this text uh, and look at it as prescriptive, well, I'll show my cards, rather than descriptive, um, we could end up in some trouble. And so i want to pray for us uh, before we open God's word together that he would allow us to be able to read it and understand it in ways uh, that are biblically faithful and helpful for us. Um, So let me pray. And God, we're grateful that we have... um, the word, that we have the scriptures, that you have chosen in your uh, goodness and in your wisdom to provide us with this text. And you've given us language to be able to understand it. You've given us minds to be able to think and meditate on it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us, um, by your spirit, the capacity to be able to see what it is you want us to see. I pray, Lord, you'd guard us against error, guard us against um, certain beliefs that would lead the, the church into sin, not that would defile your name. And Lord, I I pray too that, that it would be profitable for us that as we look at this text, that it would be more than just a history lesson, but that it might be an instructive word to us, an encouraging word for us. And so, Lord, I'm trusting that your spirit will be at work as we open your word to be able to do that. I'm praying in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts 2. Exciting chapter. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, um, I I said I'd show my cards. Um, the, The author is Luke. It's the same author as the book of Luke. Uh, in some ways, Luke has a, a prequel and a sequel, or uh, part one and part two. The, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke that we're studying in the Doctor's Cure, this is part one, and then Acts is kind of part two. And there's a fun little transition um, between Luke and Acts where Luke begins the book of Acts by addressing to whom he's writing it, uh, Theophilus. And he says, "Oh, Theophilus, um, I, I told you about everything that Jesus began to do in my first book. And it's almost as if he's implying. And I'm going to continue to tell you what Jesus is doing. In the second book here. Now that's important. Because we're looking at a text. From someone who's writing primarily as. A historian. His job is to inform Theophilus. How did the church start? How did it spread so quickly? And so throughout the book of Luke. Luke is recording the acts of the apostles, that's why it's called Acts, um, to help people know what happened. And so Luke, or I'm sorry, Acts 2 um, begins with him describing the scene. So let's read it together. We're going to read the whole uh, chapter, so stick with me. And as you're reading, um, see if you can't pull out certain truths that might be beneficial for a church in 2017 to be able to hold on to. That we'd be able to not just learn the history of it, but the practice of what might be important for us. Here we are. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the providence of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Now, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red. Before that great and glorious day of the Lord, uh, great and glorious day of the Lord arrives, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen! God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and His prearranged plan was carried out. When Jesus was betrayed, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said about him, I see that the Lord is always with me, I will not be shaken. For he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad. And my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead. Or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life. And you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Peter says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us but he was a prophet and he knew god had promised with an oath that one of david's own descendants would sit on his throne david was looking into the future speaking of the messiah's resurrection he was saying that god would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him, And to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter, had, uh, what, what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. End of prayer. A deep sense of awe came upon them, all. And the apostles performed many miracles, miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. One chapter, a lot happens. And so what I want to do is I want to pull out three separate truths that I think, even though it is a descriptive text, Luke's just describing what happened. I still think there is something that we can pull out that would make a difference in the way that we as Keystone and even you as an individual should live. And so my first point that we'll we'll draw our uh, attention to that I think is significant for us. One, God fulfills his promise and sends his spirit to believers. That's a pretty obvious point. But I don't want it to slip past us. This moment that we just read about has been a long time coming. Peter mentioned Joel. Joel was prophesying of a day when the Spirit would be poured out. Do you know how long ago Joel made that promise as he was speaking for the Lord? 960 some years prior to that day. And in other passages in the Old Testament, God promised that he would send his Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, in in two different spots, well, actually in several spots, but in John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, I'm going to ascend into heaven, and I'm going to send to you a helper or an advocate. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. And actually, just... In Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends, he gives some instructions to the church. Did you wonder why they were all gathered up in the in the room together? They, they were gathered together waiting for the Lord. They were gathering, waiting, because Jesus said, don't go anywhere. Don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then on Pentecost, this would have been a Jewish holiday, the Holy Spirit comes and I'm drawing some conclusions, maybe two individual ones. One, the fact that God fulfills his promise is good news for us because our God is a promise-keeping God. What God promises, he fulfills. And so as you think about whether or not you can trust God, what you need to do is you need to look for instances like this where God is testifying to the fact that he says, you can trust me. I promised I would send my spirit upon my people. And I'm going to do it. And so, as you read the New Testament, and as you look at verses that declare what God has to say about you, and you wonder, can I trust God with that promise? You can. And that's good news. This is one spot where we are seeing God's fulfillment reaffirm his faithfulness to us, which I think is good news means we can trust him the other reason i think that this is good news that god fulfills his promise by sending his spirit for believers is that god sends his spirit onto believers god of the universe sends his spirit onto us as believers and if you've been a part of a church for a while this is not new news you've heard this before but this is the kind of news that you're like, yeah, 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 God gave us the Holy Spirit. Yep, I confessed my sins. Uh, I was baptized. Uh, I received the Holy Spirit. Um, what else do you want me to, to tell you about what's true? And if we say it like that, we miss the fact that the God of the universe has sent his spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, and he has put his spirit on us. Now, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the Spirit. And if I asked you this question, which would you choose? Would you rather have the Spirit inside you or Jesus beside you? Which would you choose? Yeah, I want you to just uh, don't say it out loud, but just think for a moment. Which would you rather want? Would you rather have the Spirit of God inside you or would you rather? Have Jesus beside you. It's a good thing. We we don't have to think about what the actual answer is because Jesus tells us. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John chapter 16, he says verbatim, but in fact, it is best for you. It is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, I will send him to you. Jesus says to his disciples, Disciples, it is to your benefit, it is best for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I will send my spirit and put him upon you. It will be better for you to have the spirit inside you than to have me, God, Jesus speaking, to have Jesus beside you. Uh, Pastor uh, J.D. Greer wrote a book. I think Pastor Keith has alluded to it in the past. Jesus Continued. Um, Jesus inside, or uh, the spirit inside you is better uh, than Jesus beside you. And in it, he has this um, quote that I want to read because I think it gets to some of the heart of why, um, well, I'll just read it. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, most evangelicals fall into one of two extremes. Some seem obsessed, related to him in strange, mystical ways. Their experience with the Spirit seemed to coincide with an emotionally ecstatic moment created by the swell of music in a worship service or a weird confluence of events. I was praying about whether to ask Rachel out, and suddenly I saw a billboard whose background was the same color as her eyes, and I got goosebumps. I just knew it was the Holy Spirit other Christians neglect his ministry altogether. They believe the Holy Spirit, they believe in the Holy Spirit, but they relate to him in the same way I relate to my pituitary gland. I'm really grateful it's in there. I know it's essential for something. I would never want to lose it. But I don't really interact with it. For these Christians, the Holy Spirit is not a moving dynamic person. He is more of a theory. I think as a church we need to do more to understand why it's good news that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. I'm going to point out one today. Uh, J.D. Greer points out six in his book. But if the Spirit is not something that is an active part of your daily life as a Christian, I think there is something that we need to call ourselves back to, to come back to being filled with the Spirit and understanding why it's such good news that God would send His Spirit upon us. And so one of the reasons, which is my point too, the Holy Spirit gives believers extraordinary power for ordinary works. The Holy Spirit gives believers extraordinary power for ordinary works. When the Spirit of God comes to the believers in Acts, it it gives them the ability to speak um, in tongues. And I know that there are some who would like to say that the, the way that you prove that you have actually received the Holy Spirit is for you to speak in tongues. The, the problem is I don't know that I see the author of Acts prescribing something as much as he is describing something. In other words, I don't think that Luke is informing us that they spoke in tongues uh, to give us some sort of litmus test to understand if we really have the Holy Spirit. I know Luke is a doctor and he's doing some diagnostic stuff, but He's not saying, um, hey, if you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit or not, uh, let me give you a test, and if it comes back positive that you've spoken in tongues, then ta-da, you have the Holy Spirit. I think Luke is just describing a process of of what happened in that moment at that time. Because I think the overall message of Acts is uh, Luke is trying to convince, or at least show Theophilus, here is how the church grew. And I'm going to nerd out a little bit for you, but I don't think that it's an accident that the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of seven different feasts that ancient Jews uh, would celebrate. So if you read your Old Testament and look at Leviticus chapter 23, uh, you'll see that God outlines seven different feasts. Passover is one of them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, I don't know all of them, uh, Tabernacle, the Day of Atonement. Pentecost is one of those feasts, which is interesting, all right, fact number one. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, God prescribes three of these feasts that requires all Jewish men to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of uh, Booths tabernacles now why is that significant well i think that if god wants the message of jesus christ and what he's done to spread throughout the whole world what may be an effective strategy for the gospel to spread but to bring all of these people together and then give the disciples the ability to speak to them in their own language. Did you pick up, uh, what what verse is it in, where where, uh, Luke is describing all of these different people, all the different places. From all over the world, Jews have come. Parthians, Medes, some of the places that I recognize. I know where Libya is. I know where Egypt is. I know where Rome is. If you think about a map, they're coming from all over, and they're going to come to Jerusalem for a period of time, and then they're going to go back home. And if we want the gospel message to spread, and God wants it to spread, I think one of the ways that he can do that is at Pentecost, send the Holy Spirit, create a scene, give the disciples the ability to speak in languages so that they can then share that message to people who would scatter And in that moment, what we see is the the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, really to the ends of the earth from the very beginning. Now, I understand. You don't have the ability. Well, some of you probably don't have the ability to speak in tongues. But what kind of ability does the Spirit give you? Because if we've just said that as believers we have the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God living in us, it means you have power and ability to do things that you would not ordinarily be able to do on your own. These disciples, they were just Galileans. In fact, when people heard them speaking their own language, they, they were like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what's, what's happening. what ability or what power do you have because of the Holy Spirit in you that when you live that out faithfully causes the world to be perplexed? I'm not sure how I would have reacted um, had I seen the disciples do this. Uh, You can see they're, 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 they're bewildered, they're perplexed, they're amazed. Something had just happened that they didn't know they, they, were, they were hungry to know, what's going on here? Uh, just two weeks ago, um, the Eagles picked up a running back from, I think, the Dolphins, uh, Jay Ajayi. You following me, Jay Ajayi? Um, apparently, he's a really good football player. I don't, I don't know much about football, but I listened to uh, radio in the morning, and I heard uh, Jay Ajayi giving an interview to people on the radio. And I'll tell you, when I heard him, I was perplexed because Jay Ajayi, the Eagles running back, has a British accent. Do, do you guys know this? I, I, I just don't have a, a, a spot in my brain to be able to compute a, a British football player with a British accent. Now, actually I do, but it's not football, American football, it's soccer. I, I picture that all the time. And, and so at least I think I would have said, what's going on here? And I actually looked him up. I, I did some investigative work to understand, where is he from? I would not have thought that a football player would have a British accent. It was so prim and proper. The, the, the people who would have been in the crowds and heard the disciples speaking in languages, it caused them to be perplexed in a way. And some were asking the question, what does this mean? Uh, some thought, oh, they're drunk but either way the spirit moved in the church in such a way that it caused the world to be amazed it caused the world to be perplexed and as they were perplexed and amazed and bewildered what happened was there was now an opportunity for someone to step up and to explain to them why what they're seeing is actually happening now You might not have the miraculous sign of speaking in tongues, like I said, but I do believe that you have special abilities or extraordinary power to do ordinary things that would cause the world to be perplexed. Let me give you four. You have the ability to remain faithful to your spouse even when they're unfaithful to you. You have the ability to adopt and raise children that are not your own singles teenagers you have the ability to remain sexually pure until you get married we as a church have the power to serve the poor and you're thinking well, Brandon, you don't you don't need the holy spirit to do a lot of what you just said and that that is true you don't need the Holy Spirit, but you also don't need the Holy Spirit to speak in another language. I think what stood out to the people is that as a whole, the church was doing something unordinary. It was ordinary speaking in another language, but it was unordinary. It was extraordinary. I think if just one of the disciples had the ability to speak in tongues, I don't know if the crowd would have paid attention and been perplexed and amazed about what was happening. I think it's something about the corporate effect of when the Spirit of God is moving in not just an individual, but in a church that people start paying attention. When it's not just one person whose marriage is strong, but if we could say as a whole that Keystone Church, one of the things that you can bank on is that we are a church that cares about marriage and forgiveness and showing grace and working through difficult sins. That might be something that catches the world's eye. Not just if one family adopts at Keystone, but if we're going to hold the fact that we have been um, created by God in his image and believe that every orphan has a father in heaven who loves them. And we want to show them that kind of love that maybe the church does more than just have one family adopt, but maybe the church is known as the group of people who are all about adoption. It's going to stand in contrast, teenagers, if all of your friends are hooking up. That the, the church avoids all of the entanglements of that. And so I'm wondering, what is the Spirit filling us to do? Is, it, is he filling, filling us to do just miraculous signs and wonders so that we can impress the world? Da, 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 or do we want to draw attention to how the gospel is shaping us? Because what leads us into our last point is this. When the actions happen, the church grows by preaching the gospel. We're only going to make it to verse 41 today. uh, But take a a, a look at it. How many people get saved? 3,000. As a pastor, I want to know. What's the secret? What's the secret to get 3,000 people saved? Is, Is there some sort of formula? Is there some sort of special technique? Did he start with the Roman's road and then go to the Evangel cube? Or did he start with the Evangel cube and then go to the Roman's road? What's the technique that I can, you're not going to find it. I, I think you'll, you'll find some, some general things. I'll draw them out here. Uh, the first one is Peter knew his audience. Peter knew his audience. And so as he starts speaking, he's speaking because he knows the audience. So he talks about Joel. And pulls out an Old Testament prophet. And actually quotes a long section. And for his audience, that made sense to them. As you're speaking to uh, unbelievers. And they may be perplexed by your lifestyle. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to, to fill you. And to give you power to do these extraordinarily ordinary things. And someone asks, what's the reason? And you quote Joel. they're probably going to remain just as perplexed as they were before. Why? Because you've got a different audience. One of the reasons that a lot of these techniques and strategies aren't effective all the time is because our audience is constantly changing. And so our goal as Bible-believing, gospel-preaching missionaries and ministers of the gospel is to be able to know our audience and then apply the gospel to that particular situation. And so that's my my first point. He knows his audience. The second thing that I think he does well is that he draws a straight line from the action to the root of the action. He draws a straight line from what caused them to be perplexed and he explains the gospel reasoning for it. One of the reasons that Keystone emphasizes this gospel reasoning Shaped, gospel centered mindset, week in and week out. It's because we do want to live attractive, countercultural lifestyles that would cause people to wonder, what's the reason for that? And when we give them a reason, what we don't want to do is give them a law based reason. Why why is your marriage so strong? Well, the Bible says God hates divorce, and so we just Don't get divorced. If if you're looking to be able to share the gospel with somebody, I think that it would be beneficial for us if we could understand how the gospel is shaping us into strong marriages. What does the gospel give us that gives us the ability, the power to be able to love when it's not easy to love? Where do we get the power to show grace and forgiveness to someone who's hurt us and wounded us? I don't think that we've necessarily arrived at that time where we're able to draw. I don't don't think. Where we're able to draw a straight line from the action to the root of the action. But that's what we're trying to do on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing the songs. We're trying to give you the gospel fuel that would provide you the resources to be able to produce gospel-shaped works that would cause the world to notice the good works that we're doing and eventually praise our Father in Heaven once they hear the gospel reasoning for our actions, our behavior. Now, 3,000 people get saved. We'll we'll spend a little bit more time um, talking about uh, the rest of this chapter, but I want to close by giving us one final urging take a look at what Peter ends up telling the church or telling uh, the crowd the crowd hears Peter preach the gospel and uh, verse 37 his words cut them to their heart Peter said things that caused the people to feel something And they asked, okay, what must we do? And Peter gives an answer. Repent. Repent. Turn from whatever it is you were doing and turn back to God. On a morning like this morning, if if there's an element of the fact that I, I do believe that the Spirit of God has Given to all believers, but I don't necessarily see the Spirit working in and through me. The, the thing that I want to do is I I want to I want to repent of that. If if I believe that the Spirit of God is the one who's allowing me to do these extraordinary things and giving me the opportunity to then share the gospel, reason for why I did what I did, and I'm not doing that, I want to repent. And I, I and as a church. I want our church to resemble more of what the church was at the beginning. Not an institution, not a place for people to go, but a movement where the Spirit of God is filling people to do extraordinarily ordinary things so that the world pays attention. And so I'm going to close here by praying that God would fill us in ways that would advance the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking um, for the, the kind of Pentecost moment I know, Lord, uh, a lot of people in here have already put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. They believe the truths that you have shown your love for us by sending Christ to live and die and be resurrected for us. And we trust that. Lord, I trust that in that moment of faith, you have given us your spirit. But Lord, I want to see the spirit move. I want to see the church move be filled with the Spirit, and do the kinds of things that would cause the world to be amazed and perplexed. So Lord, I pray that you'd give us the the power to be able to do these ordinary things, that if as a church we did them all together, people would notice. Give us the minds then to be able to explain to somebody why we did what we did. Let us speak in ways that make sense Give us the, the capacity to be able to, to endure with people, to forgive one another, to be generous and hospitable, that we might be able to stand in stark contrast to the world. Lord, if, if we need to repent, I pray, Lord, you pierce our hearts and that your spirit would call us back to your presence i pray that would be true in jesus name amen